I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This is Livewire Radio. We're backstage and we have got an amazing show coming up. We've got Justin Simeon, director of the movie Dear White People. Also the band Magic Mouth is here. But we are so, so excited to also have Cheryl Strayed, the author, of course, of the book Wild, which is now the movie Wild with Reese Witherspoon in it. Tonight, Cheryl, we're talking about big breaks. And you're kind of in a series of big breaks. What has been the most surreal part for you of having your book turned into this big hit movie? It's surreal to have Reese Witherspoon play me in the film, but it was surreal, frankly, to have my book become a bestseller. Your dream life is exactly how I dreamed my dream life would be. <laughs> Beverly Hills, Reese Witherspoon. I'm just happy that you're not going to be nervous about meeting me. I mean, Actually, I'm a Luke, public radio host. You know, it's the radio people who make me the most starstruck. For years, I had a mad crush on Ray Suarez. I lusted after him. And then he went to TV and the magic was lost. Well, that's why I'm still doing a radio show and not a TV <laughs> show. A radio show that starts right now. From PRI, Public Radio International, it's... Yes, it's Livewire Radio from the beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon, with wild author Cheryl Strayed, dear white people director Justin Simeon, and music from Magic Mouth. All that, plus comedy from our troupe Overpriced Ketchup, and music from our house band led by Mr. Ralph Huntley. And now, the host of Livewire, the original Becky on Roseanne, Luke Burbank! Wow. Thank you very much to our house band. Thanks to Jason Rouse. Thanks to everybody here in the Alberta Rose Theater. Our theme for this hour of Livewire is big breaks. And we have a couple of guests coming out later who have had titanically large, amazing big breaks, like winning awards at Sundance and having the number one book in the entire land. These people have been having a great year. If I was trying to think of what my big break in radio would be, I guess it would be the first time that I was allowed to actually host a radio show by myself. And it was um, uh, back when I just got out of college, I was a low-level producer at the leading conservative AM talk radio station in Seattle, not to brag, um, <laughs> Hot Talk 570. And I went into my boss's office one day and I said, 
I think I'm ready to host my own show. And he looked at his calendar, which had a huge hole on it, and said, uh, okay, you can do your first try at this Christmas Eve from 6 to 9. <laughs> and I thought, sweet, prime time. <laughs> so Christmas Eve comes. I'm very nervous. I'm like 21 years old. And it's 6 o'clock, and the music plays. And I have a whole stack of topics that I'm just going to hot talk it up with, going to really get them going in Seattle on this Christmas Eve. And I read the first topic, and I give the phone number, and nobody calls in. <laughs> and then I, I read the next topic, and I look back at the phones, and there are no calls. And I read through all of the topics. <laughs> I've basically used every arrow in my hot talk quiver. And I look up, and it's like 6.03. Now, this is three hours of AM radio on Christmas Eve. There are no guests. I don't have a sidekick. Getting calls is really vital to this being survivable. We got one call the entire night. It was from a very elderly woman named Bernice. And Bernice was the kind of caller that when I was a call screener, I had been trained to make sure does not get on the air under any circumstances. <laughs> She told like a 45-minute story about a Christmas ornament she had once had. And at the end of this 45-minute sort of meandering stem winder, I said to her, and I quote, Bernice, can you stick around through the commercial? <laughs> Still got some questions about this ornament situation. And she said no. Because even Bernice had better places to be. So I thought my big break was going to be that like a million people were going to listen to this show and that I was going to become this overnight radio success. But my big break was actually that nobody listened to this show. Like nobody heard it. My, my boss didn't hear it. My parents didn't hear it. Bernice, I don't think, heard a lot of the show. That may have been a hearing aid thing. But... And what also was a big break for me, I think, was this realization that I had, right, which was that I went out and I hosted this radio show, and it could not have gone worse. I mean, it literally was worse than my worst nightmare about how it was going to go. And I got up the next day, and life went on. Things were fine. And I learned something that has served me throughout my radio career, which is that failure is, in fact, an option. <laughs> so, so you know where the bar is for this show for me. If I seem very kind of relaxed and just, like, happy to be here, it's, it's because, well, number one, I am. And number two, it's not Christmas Eve. I'm not doing this by myself for three hours, and you guys are not Bernice. So this is going to be a hell of a show. Uh, Speaking of big breaks, this definitely counts as one. After releasing his first feature, Dear White People, director Justin Simeon won the Special Jury Award for Breakthrough Talent at Sundance and became one of Variety's 10 directors to watch. The film was called As Smart and Fearless a Debut as I Have Seen from an American Filmmaker in Quite Some Time by the New York Times' A.O. Scott. Please welcome Justin Simeon to Livewire. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to the show. Hey man, that was fun. 
It was like there was music playing when I entered. No one will see that, but it was really exciting for me. This show has a weird effect where you start to want your real life to have elements from this show. Like oh, you want definitely. a music soundtrack. Everywhere I go. You want 400 beautiful public radio listeners. Gorgeous. Laughing at all of Gorgeous. your jokes. Yeah. It goes to your head after a while. It really does. I speak from experience. I don't know what I'm going to do after this is over. Because um, I'm normally dancing in the street anyway, but nobody knows why. So It could be because uh, you won an award at Sundance with the first movie you ever tried to make. Yeah, that was cool. That was cool. <laughs> that was pretty cool. <laughs> that was better than the, uh, the alternative. <laughs> what was the alternative? Uh, like no one caring or like, you know, dying while trying to make the movie. That was... Something that came up in my mind. That was your plan <laughs> a few B. Times. Yeah. At least I'll be a hero. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. People remember what I tried to do. Um, for, for people who haven't seen Dear White People, kind of, what's the, the plot? What's, what's it about? It's a love letter to white people. <laughs> um, I it's just an hour and 30 minutes. Got a really of... different read off of it. <laughs> it basically follows these uh, four black kids at a mostly white Ivy League college trying to sort of navigate identity and who they are in this space that doesn't really reflect anything about them. Uh, it's also a, just sort of a satire about kind of where I saw us being kind of in America. And I wanted to sort of put my black experience out there in the culture because I really didn't see it anywhere. I was going to ask when you got the sort of idea for this film. Was it one moment, or was it just the you know accretion of a bunch of little experiences? I think it was. I think it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, I, sort of being the black face in a white place was a common theme for me just growing up and uh, going to various different schools. And I found myself kind of having these conversations uh, at the school that I went to, Chapman University. Shout out to the Panthers. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, also a very white place. And, you know, me and the two other black kids there just sort of musing, <laughs> musing about, you know, what that experience was like. And, and because I, I had grown up kind of loving the black smart house of the late 80s, early 90s, like the Spike Lee and the Robert Townsends, all those films that had, at that point, it completely died out of the cinema. Uh, I, I don't know. It just sort of came together in my mind as a a way to sort of pay homage but say something new. Now, you were a student at Chapman University, which is a Christian university that <laughs> you mentioned is mostly white. You are a gay black man. It's true. It's How'd true. that go? It was <laughs> Oh, man. Um, you know what? I got a movie out of it, so... <laughs> <laughs> So it went okay, I guess. <laughs> Worked uh, out for me. You know, a lot, of, a lot of people who have seen the movie and heard the, the, all the attention that the film has received think, oh, this is a movie about racism. But I've, I've heard you say that it's not really, in your opinion, about racism as much as it's about something you call microaggression. Yeah. What is well, that? I mean, to be honest with you, it's, to me, it's more about identity. You know, these are kids who are trying to figure out what relationship their identity has with who they are when everyone sees them in completely messed up ways. And, um, and to me, the a microaggression, it's not like sort of like lynch mob racism, but it's sort of based on assumptions that may or may not be true. So me getting a car and someone immediately putting on 50 cent, you know what I mean? <laughs> Just to make me comfortable. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I find that weird. I also had a, you know, this is a pretty common one that comes up in the movie and, and for a lot of black people, I think, 
topic is I had, you know, it wasn't a full-on afro, but it was like a half-ro. So, uh, and, and people just felt obligated to put their hands in it. Like, they were fascinated by it, you know. That's a big part of this movie. If there's one takeaway for me of the film, don't do it. Don't touch <laughs> someone's hair without asking. Without a, you can ask, and then if they say yes, you can do it. But Although you do, there's a scene where one of your main characters is just trying to be basically nice yeah. and act like it's not annoying that some lady has her hands in his hair. I've been there. <laughs> That's based on personal experience. I've been there. I've been in that particular situation where it's like, oh yeah, this is totally relaxing for me as well. <laughs> 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 this is what I don't understand about the math of the hair touching thing. Uh-huh. Every black person that I know has at some point had somebody touch their hair without asking. Mm-hmm. Every white person I know says they would never do that. Somebody How does is, this someone, someone is not telling the I don't want to draw <laughs> conclusions here, but someone's not telling the truth. We're talking to Justin Simeon. He's got a uh, film out and also a book called Dear White People. This is Livewire Radio. I, I, I found the film so fascinating because, as you said, it's really a, a movie also about identity. And it's not like, you know, there's so much going on in this country right now where we're having, or we should be anyway, having really difficult, really serious conversations about race and how people are treated and things like that. And yet this, this movie, it seems like the, the white people who are doing microaggressions and doing dumb things like putting on a radio station they assume a black person would like. They're not the worst people. It's not, mm. it's not to use a weird way to say, it, it's not black and white. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, totally. it's, it seems more realistic how this stuff really unfolds. Was that an important thing for you in making the film? Oh, it was so important. Because I didn't want to make anything dogmatic. I didn't want to make anything that sort of you walked away with an easy lesson because that's kind of not how it works, you know? And one of the most, you know, profound things I think for any filmmaker of color and any filmmaker worth anything is when you see do the right thing for the first time and you realize that no one in the movie is doing the right thing. <laughs> and, and you kind of have no idea what that even might be after you after you see it and you just see people in a microcosm doing what they would normally do and that had a profound impact on me as a filmmaker because it was like if we're going to talk about something this big I had to tell the truth I couldn't sort of you know put the world as I'd like it to be you know everyone is kind of flawed and and just in there trying to figure it out yeah as a white person I was uh, it was news to me the way, at least in your film, is portrayed about black people interacting with each other about their level of blackness. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't really s- seen a view into that world, you know, because I'm a white dude. <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> it takes some getting used to. <laughs> now, also, there are uh, some scenes where uh, some of the white actors in the film, one white actor in particular comes to mind, he has some kind of unsavory lines, and it makes me think of, I feel like it was, it was a sketch I saw somewhere where it was like, the worst thing would be to try out for one of the white people in Django Unchained, because <laughs> you have to be the most mean, horrible, hateful person. Yeah. Did, did the, any of the white actors who were called upon to do really dumb, kind of racisty stuff, did you see them just like die a little bit when they had to say something? That... You know what? There was one character in particular, Kurt, who says some pretty provocative things, I'll say. But, you know, um, Kyle Gellner, who's a brilliant an actor uh, and was one of the first people I cast actually I cast him because he was the only one who sort of played that character from 
from all angles. So in one moment, Kurt is sort of being an ass, really just to get a reaction. And in another moment, he's actually saying something true that the other characters need to kind of listen to. And I liked that about Kyle's, that he immediately sort of picked up on how to play it from all the different angles. But I'll tell you, the, the, <laughs> there was one kind of funny moment, because uh, if you Google the film, you'll find this out. But one of the central sort of things that happens in it is there's a blackface party, which is sort of a thing that people love doing, apparently, across the country, even today. And so these college kids are sort of, you know, in, you know, uh, sort of acting out these black stereotypes. And one, of, you know, it was one of the last days on set, and I brought in all of these sweet, wonderful, adorable white extras from Minneapolis, <laughs> and you know, who thought they were just doing like a college party scene. <laughs> and we start, you know, they start donning this like makeup, and they realize, oh, we're playing black people. Okay. <laughs> We're playing white people, playing racistly black people. playing black but, yeah, people. That's what's going on. And the look in their eyes, you know, they felt so apologetic. And it was like, it's okay, I'm making you do this. <laughs> it's really flipping the script. This there. is my fault, <laughs> not yours. <laughs> now dance to two chains. Yeah. <laughs> but like also don't never settle into before. the role too easily. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. That, that also, around 4 a.m., it kind of descended into that. I was like, okay, everybody take a break. <laughs> um, I want to run through a couple of the uh, of the, the terms that you kind of coin in the in the film and in the book. What's Columbusing? <laughs> so. <laughs> So I didn't come up with this particular term, uh, but Columbusing is basically discovering uh, for white people. So it's something that existed already. <laughs> so, you know, like twerking or quinoa. It's like... It was, it was already there, and white people said, hey, other white people, this is a thing now. Um, so that's, that's Columbusing. <laughs> what, do you, uh, what do you want to do for your next project? Um, something very different from this. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll tell you one thing. I think that uh, it's an ensemble piece. Um, there's a lot more to say, I think, about it and about these characters. And so I've made it no secret that I think ultimately Dear White People should be on television. And I'd love to have 13, 20 hours to get into these stories as opposed to just one and a half. But I will say for the next film, um, while I think I'll always have a bit of a satirical streak in my work, uh, I'd love to do something very different. So. I'm working very hard to make that Dear happen. Black People? Yeah, that's the one. That's well, it. American history up until this point has kind of been a Dear Black People. I'm just <laughs> keeping it real. So I, that might be redundant. All right. Well, you're the filmmaker. You know what you're doing. Justin Simeon, ladies and gentlemen, the man behind Dear you. White People. <laughs> that was Justin Simeon. His movie and book are both entitled Dear White People. You are listening to Livewire, the radio show that got our big break the old-fashioned way by leaking celebrity nudes of ourselves. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, working with their seafood buyers, suppliers, and the industry as a whole towards healthier oceans. Because the ocean can't just show up at the gym. That would be awkward. And also, treadmills are moist enough as it is. More information can be found about Whole Foods' seafood rating program at WholeFoods.com. We will be right back. This Livewire podcast is brought to you by Ergo Depot, now featuring the Jarvis sit-stand desk for when you want to hang low or get high. 
Now I know that sounds like a drug reference, but it's actually not, because Ergo Depot knows that standing tall means higher energy levels, higher concentration and output. Jarvis has a memory handset that allows you to raise the desk to whatever height you like, and its LED readout always tells you how high you are, just like your old friend Phil used to do in college. Okay, now that was a drug reference. I'm, I'm sorry, we, we just really miss Phil around here. Find the Jarvis sit-stand desk and more furniture for a healthy workday at ergodepot.com, where we figuratively have your back. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI, Public Radio International. Dear Netflix, I've really enjoyed our time together, and you've helped me through so much over the years. When I had strep, you brought me the second season of House of Cards. When I sprained my ankle, you introduced me to Bob's Burgers. And in March, when I broke up with Mark, you offered up, I spit on your grave, and didn't say anything when I watched it 37 times. And because you've always known exactly what I need, I have to say I was shocked at what I found at the top of my recommended movies list last night. Super Babies, Baby Geniuses 2? Who the hell do you think I am, Netflix? And what's happened to us? You know I find smart babies off-putting. And because I dated Mark, geniuses obviously aren't my thing. So who are those recommendations for, Netflix? Have I ever expressed an interest in the supernatural adventure films starring a strong male toddler genre? No, I haven't. And can we talk about your genres? Imaginative time travel movies from the 80s starring former second-tier Charlie's Angels? Coming-of-age animal tales with horses and or dogs with diseases? Movies Deborah Winger dies in? Are you stoned, Netflix? Because last night you suggested Richard Pryor in concert because I had, quote, enjoyed the deer hunter. Yes, coincidentally, I enjoyed both of those movies, but that doesn't mean that's not an effed up thing to say. You know, I'll stick it out through the holidays because of, you know, depression. But after that... Consider us on a break, okay? Because Hulu Plus has expressed an interest, and and he suggested exit through the gift shop. He gets me. Love, Courtney. That was Courtney Hommeister. Our musical guest this week got a big break when they toured last summer with Beth Ditto's band Gossip, but now they're making their own breaks. This post-funk, that's right, that's spelled with a P-H. This post-funk band grew from a mutual love of Nina Simone and Tequila. And they've gotten love from Vice, Magnet, even Slater, Kinney's Corin Tucker, who named them her favorite new band last year. Please welcome Magic Mouth to Livewire. Yeah. 
Magic Mouth, right here on Livewire Radio. 
That was Magic Mouth. Their latest recording is live at Mississippi Studios. You're listening to Livewire Radio from Portland, Oregon, where we've become famous for being a nest of affluent, middle-class bohemians who dress like the Amish. (laughs) And less so for our amazing beer and pot, which is really a travesty if you think about it. Livewire is brought to you in part by Laughing Planet Cafe, sourcing local ingredients, recycling, and composting to help keep the planet happy. Because we've all seen the earth when she's grumpy, and it is not pretty. More information at laughingplanetcafe.com. In 2012, Cheryl Strayed released her memoir, Wild, out into the world, and it, it did pretty okay. Like number one on the New York Times bestseller list, okay. Oprah restarted her book club just to feature Cheryl's story of hiking the 1,100 miles of the Pacific Crest Trail to escape heroin and her failing marriage and grief over the loss of her mother. The movie is now a Golden Globe-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon. Here to talk about what a wild ride it's been. (laughs) See what we did there? Wild. Here to talk about what a wild ride it's been. Please welcome Cheryl Strayed to Livewire. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show, Cheryl. It's so great to be here. I love Livewire. This book has been obviously such a a giant hit. Did you have a sense when you were writing it and when you finished it that this was something really special for you? No, no. It was, every day was misery and self-loathing, essentially. You know, I, I... when, I mean, writing is hard, and there's no way ever that I was thinking, man, this is going to be a bestseller. I obviously did the best I could do, and sometimes, you know, I may, I'm exaggerating when I say every day was misery. It was always hard. Sometimes it was fun and glorious and magic. The way I mean, your toenails weren't falling off, That's so that right. was a plus. That's right. But it was a slog the way a book is. And, you know, you really just have to keep the faith with the page and write that best page that you can write, and come what may. I was as shocked as anyone um, when the book was such a hit. What do you think uh, it is about the book that has it resonating with so many people? I think that I told a really ancient story about what it means to love and lose and try to uh, find your strength again. So many people talk to me about the book. By, and when, when they talk to me about my book, they're telling me about their lives. And so I knew I was really tapping into um, a, a pretty universal story when I told my specific one. Um, you talk in the book about how your aspiration was to be a writer, but at any point when you're hiking all these miles and all this kind of crazy stuff is happening to you, was some part of your brain thinking, this will be a hell of a book? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I wasn't. I wasn't thinking that. And that's why, you know, I didn't begin writing Wild until 2008. Um, By then, 13 years had passed between, you know, my hike and the the time I began writing it. And the reason I didn't ever write it is I didn't think it was a story really worth telling. Um, We've all had adventures. We've all had... By the way, never trust your instincts. (laughs) You know, I just... Well, well, I wanted it to be a book that wasn't just look at me, look how interesting I am. Mm -hmm. I took a hike, a long hike, or I suffered a great loss. Both of those things are true, but, but until I had something to say about those experiences, I didn't want to write the book. Hmm. This is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Cheryl Strayed. Her book, Wild, has now been turned into a movie uh, starring Reese Witherspoon. Speaking of which, they sent me a copy of the book this week, 
It's got a bunch of pictures of Reese Witherspoon on it, <laughs> pretending to be you on yeah. your book that you wrote. Is that well, weird for you? Where does she get off? I know. <laughs> well, if, if you're going to have somebody play you in the movie of your life, it might as well be Reese Witherspoon. But I mean, even the fact that now, I mean, that's the, that's the world of film. There's the right. world of the book, mm-hmm. which now when you walk through the airport and past a Hudson book seller, I'm going to see Wild with Reese Witherspoon on it pretending to be you. Is that strange for you? Well, just for the record, the, the, the book with the boot on the cover is outselling the book with Reese Witherspoon on the cover. <laughs> just, I, I have this, this thing. I can go online and look week by week at the book sales. And just last night I was looking at that. These people are... Fans of Boots and weirdly not fans of Reese Witherspoon. That's what that applause break just taught us. Um, Speaking of the movie business, your actual daughter Hmm. plays young you in the movie and your daughter who's named Bobby for for your mother. That's Uh, right. How did that come about? It was really just by chance. Uh, you know, we shot the movie here in, in Oregon, and Jean-Marc Vallée, the director, and Bruno Papandrea, the producer, met my kids, and they said, what about Bobby for young Cheryl? And I, I told my daughter about it, and, you know, she has to be in some really difficult scenes. I, I had an abusive father. Um, there, you know, she has to, you know, enact those scenes. I explained that to her. She immediately said, no, I don't want to do it. Um, so my husband and I didn't bring it up again, but we couldn't, um, they couldn't find, they couldn't cast that role. And she overheard me talking to my husband about that. And she just said, we were driving, and she said from the backseat of the car, I want to audition. And we tried to talk her out of it because I thought we should trust her first impulse. Can but you she, imagine if she didn't get the role after I know. all that? <laughs> but you know, given we, it to Danny DeVito. We, <laughs> We went in, and she, she was with the director and the casting agent, and she sent my husband and I from the room. She didn't want us to be there, and she got the role, and she was incredible. She played opposite Laura Dern, who plays my mom, and it was just so moving. I mean, one of the things about the making of this movie is we, I became dear friends with Reese Witherspoon, with Laura Dern, with, with everyone involved. And, um, you know, to have my daughter, you know enacting scenes from my life with this grandmother she would never meet was incredibly powerful and moving. There's one moment where she leaps into Laura Dern's arms and they just hold each other. And it was really um, the the moment for me where the, the whole experience came full circle. And I really thought about so much in my writing. I wrote out of my pain. I wrote out of my grief. And what I wanted more than anything was my mother back. And as much as I can, I have brought her back through this work. And in that moment, where actually my daughter gets to have the experience of leaping into this woman's arms, it was like a full circle moment. You must have been a total mess watching <laughs> this from whatever director's chair they had you sitting in. I was. I was standing right. Uh, Jean-Marc Vallée would have me stand next to him under that you know, black blanket that you're looking at the, the monitor. And, and yes, I was crying, and I looked over at him, and he was crying. And then I looked around, and everyone on the crew um, was crying. I mean, we all knew what that moment meant. That it took no explanation. You were seemingly so much more involved with this film than a lot of people who wrote a book that's then adapted into a movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that something that you pushed for or they pushed for? 
There was no pushing. Um, it really happened organically. It wasn't a contractual agreement. It was simply, you know, it began with Reese. Uh, Reese read the book before it was published, immediately called me. She loved it. She wanted to, to you know, option it for film. And we um, became friends. We just liked each other a lot. We became sort of creative collaborators. And then each person, as they came onto the project, that became true. Nick Hornby wrote the script. Um, Laura Dern, Jean-Marc Vallée. We all just liked each other. And so they invited me along. Um, they, they all wanted me to be there on the set with them day by day. They wanted to hear what I thought of the script. Um, it's really unique. When Jean-Marc Vallée was editing the film, he sent me cut by cut. I probably saw eight cuts of the film. And after I watched it, I would Skype with him. And he would say, what do you think? And I would tell him what I thought. It's very rare that you meet so many people who are so good at what they do, who have so little ego about it. Um, everyone wanted to hear what I had to say. It was amazing. And Nick Hornby... Uh, Nick Hornby, who, who wrote the, the screenplay version, he's obviously um, a really well-regarded screenwriter who's written some incredible films. Um, that being said, he had to make some calls about what parts of your life are not actually going to make it into the film version. And I've actually heard him in interviews talking about how amicable and how supportive you were in those conversations. But, I mean, was there one scene that didn't make it in the movie? Was there one thing that you were just kind of like, oh? Well, the biggest thing for me is my sister does not exist in the film, nor does my stepfather. And so once you've made that decision that you have, you know, I come from a, a mother, a stepfather, and a brother and sister, and then in the film it's just this mother with her two kids. And so once you have that, like, it just, he changed the whole structure of my family and therefore the dynamic of my life. Um, and I had to just allow myself to adjust to that a bit over time and realize that there had to be some fictional aspects of the film. You, you know, they, they just couldn't have all of these characters. The film, having said that, the film is so much truer to life and to the book than I imagined it would be. I thought they were going to fictionalize a lot more. My biggest worry was that suddenly, you know, like Reese would meet like Fabio or something on the trail, uh -huh. you know? <laughs> and then like they'd fall in love and at the Bridge of the Gods, he'd get down on one knee and propose, you know? And um, any number of disastrous things like that that could happen. And, and, and they didn't do any of that. And they, I mean, conceivably could have done that because once they option the rights to do this with your book, they have the right to do more or less anything they want? Well, that's what's so interesting. You're actually, the phrase they use is your life rights. So what that you, doesn't sound <laughs> ominous. So what you're, <laughs> what you're signing away are your life rights. And of course, this was a real question for me because I write about my life. And I wasn't willing to say, okay, now, you know, Reese Witherspoon owns my life. And, but, you know, it is, it, it, I, I mean, I hate to sound, I mean, it was really such a unique experience. Reese said in our first conversation, she said, I pledge to you, I pledge to you, I will honor you, and I will honor your book, and I will honor your life. And I wrote this down as we were talking, I was writing down these notes Every, everything she said. And she was so true to her word. She would never, ha I was in, she would never have done anything um, that dishonored me or upset me. She was so respectful. Um, I had just a marvelous Hollywood experience, contrary to everything you hear about Hollywood. Uh, I've heard that uh, hiking on this Pacific Crest Trail has gone up by some 
ridiculous amount. Now everybody <laughs> reads the book and they want to go reenact your life. Would you ever hike it again or was this a one-shot deal for you? Oh, I love, I love hiking. I would go do it again in a heartbeat. I would love to do it with my family. I have- Can you imagine, by the way, how much that would blow people's mind <laughs> if you just came hiking p- past them at some point? There's They're a- holding the minute. book. <laughs> we got to stop eating these mushrooms we found by the trail. It's really messing with us. I've had that happen on airplanes a lot. I've been traveling a lot with the book. And I've many times been seated smack next to somebody who is reading my book. And, um, and it's very uncomfortable because often we're like an actual like, body contact with each other. And I can hear them, like, I can feel them like shuddering and heaving because they're weeping. And um, I'm always peeking over like what section they're in. And um, it's all I can do not to reach over sometimes and say, just keep reading. It's going to be funny in a minute. And, um, and one time I was on the plane, I, was, I got aboarded a plane in Portland, and it was crack of dawn, and I was flying to, to Santa Barbara, where Oprah lives. And so I texted her and said, I'm coming to Santa Barbara to give a talk tonight. Do you want to come? And she texted me back. Wait, said, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I don't care what this computer screen says about wrap-up. You have Oprah's cell phone okay, number? So, oh, no, Oprah, Oprah loves to text. Like, she's a mad texter, okay? So... I texted her, and she says, no, no, I can't. I'm not in Santa Barbara. I'm about to interview Lance Armstrong. It was when she was interviewing Lance Armstrong. And I was like, oh, good luck. So the flight attendant, th- this, has a, this has an end. Then the flight attendant comes down the, the aisle, and she tells me to turn my phone off. And just then, the text comes up, and it says, Oprah. And she nudges me, and she said, wouldn't it be so funny if that were the real Oprah? <laughs> I'm changing every contact in my phone to Oprah <laughs> just to look like Cheryl Strait. Cheryl Strait, ladies and gentlemen, the book is wild. That was Cheryl Strait. Of course, she is author of the best selling book, Wild. We're talking about big breaks this week on the show, and we've been talking about Cheryl Strayed's thousand-mile journey on the Pacific Crest Trail and her amazing book, Wild, which is now a film. And it sort of got us to thinking, what would it be like to recreate that journey? And, and so we actually, this is a real thing, we sent our announcer, Jason Rouse, down to Hood River, Oregon, which is where Cheryl ended her hike, and he is here to tell us about it. Please welcome Jason Rouse. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Luke. Hey, so how was it, man? It was, I mean, a huge challenge, obviously. It was just a big challenge. How uh, was walking 1,100 miles? Uh, Luke, man, well, uh, the truth is, uh, the truth is I actually didn't make it that many uh, Um, at all. Well... Okay, how many did you actually hike? Well, uh, about point zero one on the... Look, look, look. To be fair, 1,100 miles is a super long way to go. Super long. And, uh, you know, I was really kind of lucky to make it as far as I did, if I'm being honest. You barely hiked any distance. Like, you hiked the minimum amount of measurable distance. Thank you. That's not a compliment. <laughs> um, I understand... 
You brought some audio back with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I was equipped and I brought the actual moment that I started the journey and uh, it does need some setup. It was about 40 degrees. It was overcast. Okay. Uh, I had eaten about four waffles, five to eight waffles. I am, I am hungover and I am a little scared. And here's the clip. Did you fall down? A couple times, just a few, <laughs> five to eight times. Um, okay, so, uh, so Cheryl... It's um, Jason. In, no, Luke, you interrupted Jason. me. No, you, I was saying Cheryl's book, okay? It has oh. all these details about her struggles, mm. you know, like she runs out of water and all of her toenails fall off. And yeah, the problem uh, with this report, Jason, is it sounds like you didn't struggle at all. Uh, well, that's not true. Luke, one man's struggle is another man's just complete abandoning of all sort of aspirations and agreements and just sort of completely, like, giving up instantaneously. <laughs> Seriously? That's your answer? In my defense, in my defense, I am in hideous physical shape. Like, I'm, like, I can't believe he's still alive physical shape. If I was a shape, Luke, I would be an oval. Did you have any supplies with you? I mean, this... Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was well prepared. I had uh, Hot Pockets, uh, two iPads, and some Tang. <laughs> iPads, really? Yeah. That's what, what kind of Hot Pockets were they? Oh, they were good. They had the pepperoni pizza and the breakfast kind. And I was so stoked. But then you get out there, and it's like, you know, how, how am I going to heat them up? Because yeah. I brought no matches and no microwave. So that was stupid. <laughs> that was my yeah. first mistake. What did you actually do for two solid months, Jason? Oh, it was great. I, my friend Adam lives in Hood River, and he let me hang out in his den. Um, I worked my way through the Hot Pockets and through the entire series of House MD on Netflix. So, win-win. And, you know, I did learn some stuff. Oh, good. What did you learn? It's never lupus. What? On House, it's never lupus. You always think it's going to be lupus... Pull the, pull the rug out. Never lupus. You know, Jason, I'm glad you got to catch up on the goings-on of Dr. House, but I, the book that Cheryl wrote, it, like, inspired all these people, and yeah. I guess I hope that in going on this journey, you were also going to be yeah, inspired. I, mean, I, was, I was inspired. I mean, truthfully, um, I've really never read a book that at the end of each chapter, my, my head was in my hands. I was just overwrought. A book that I looked through my life through the spectrum of another it was absolutely inspiring, and it made me want to do a lot of things. Like, I think I am finally, finally going to try heroin. And I want to thank Cheryl for that. I'm a thousand percent sure that's not the message. No, well, you know what? It turned out pretty good for her. She's got Oprah's cell phone, dude. The real one. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Jason Rouse with another very underwhelming report you're listening to Livewire Radio one more time ladies and gentlemen please give it up for Magic Mouth
Thank you. That is Magic Mouth right here on Livewire. And that's our show. Thanks, everybody. Our thanks to our guests, Cheryl Strait, Justin Simeon, and Magic Mouth. This show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, Ergo Depot, and Laughing Planet Cafe. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. 
Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Courtney Hameister is head writer and producer. Jim Brunberg is producer and member of our house band, along with Jonathan Newsom. Jason Rouse is associate producer and part of our writing team, which also includes Alex Falcone. Graham Nystrom is our technical director, house sound by Neil Blake, stage management by Jillian Tabler. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council, Meyer Memorial Trust, the Oregon Arts Commission, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, the Oregon Cultural Trust, Work for Art, the Oregon Community Foundation, and listeners like you fine, beautiful people. Tonight we'd like to thank Joe Colley, Adam East, Harriet Hargrave, Matt Maggi, and everyone here at the Alberta Rose Theater for an amazing run. They have been an unbelievable team, and we have loved having the Alberta Rose as our home for the last four and a half wonderful years. For more information about our show and how to become a member of LiveWire, visit LiveWireRadio.org. You can download our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and find us on Twitter and Facebook at LiveWire Radio. I'm Luke Burbank. We'll see you next week. Public Radio International. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is... Uh, It would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, Reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, Thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.